First things first. Let's stand. Dear Holy Father, we thank you for your wonderful love. Thank you for your invitation to us this morning. Thank you for the singing and the lifting of voices. Thank you, Lord, for the gift of song. Thank you for oxygen to breathe this morning that makes it possible for us to sing. And Lord, I pray that this would be a week of blessing for every single one. No one will miss the blessing. All of us get it together, young and older alike. Bless, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning and God bless you. It's a privilege and a joy to jump out of my 6th through 7th and 8th grade classroom this morning and have my youngest son substitute and I get to be with you, a little older group. I've wondered sometimes why I always work with junior high when there are older ones like you that one could be a part of and speak and share with. I hope this will be a week of blessing as we address the issue of music. I know for many, music can be a rather emotional issue. And I would like to invite you at the very beginning to just consider one session will lead into the next, to the next, to the next, to the next. And they're gonna, it's going to arouse some questions as we go along. But if you're patient, I think you'll get a picture by the conclusion what we're trying to say. If I had a theme for the entire eight sessions that I'll be sharing, it would be restoring the wonder of Christian song. And the reason I say that is because we are so accustomed to being in a Christian environment. And we are so accustomed to going to church and we're so accustomed to having families that care about the Lord and it's not everybody's experience. And I think one of the things that we should dread the most is getting so accustomed to it that it becomes commonplace and no longer treasured. And that's why I'd like to share with you the wonder of Christian song. What you just did, those past three songs this morning, is a gift that has been given to you, is a gift from God to the Christian church that is not being practiced in many other places and countries. They would love to lift their voices and sing. And I'm not so sure about what that time might be coming for our country. I don't know. I'm not going to be a doomsayer. But I will say to you this morning, let's embrace the wonder while we have the enjoyment. And it's amazing. It's amazing what God is doing in countries where these things are not permitted. I'm going to give you a historical tour, both in the first session and the second session today, that help us understand the decline of culture and why music has come in the world as it has come today, just to help you understand. Maybe it's not a problem to you, the kinds of things that we'll be talking about this first day of Bible school. But it is going to be a problem to the people that you wish you could reach that are living right down your road or up your street. People that you wish, young people that you see, and you see the lostness in their eyes, 
and you wish that you could draw them to Christ and be some sort of influence that would make them want to be a Christian and want to be like you. And if we look like people who just live on lemon juice and pickles, we're not going to be the kind of people that are going to invite those people and make it inviting to look to serve Christ. We should be a lump of sunshine, every one of us. And then God can bless our, our lives. And, and you'll be an invitation to people. They'll see what you're like. But today, music is draining that sunshine out of even Anabaptist people. And we want to see you enjoy what God has intended for you. I get the title for this week's experience from an experience that Iris Sankey and Deal Moody had years ago. They had traveled to Europe. And later we'll talk about some of these early writers and some of their experiences in revival and their experience of songwriting, etc. But that's for later. Right now, I'd like to take you to Europe with me. And Moody was preaching and Sankey was singing and it was unusual. And the, and the crowds were growing and getting larger. But one day, Moody was very upset as he spoke to Sankey and he said, I hear that there are people that are not being permitted to come to the services. And he was right. Why? Because there were gypsies who were trying to come to the services and the ushers knew very well gypsies had the same stereotype today as they did then. And the gypsies were expert pickpockets. And the people, the ushers, knew that if they let the gypsies come in here, sit among the crowd, that's an excellent time for them to pickpocket somebody and to get their money. And you know, people back then... They appreciated their purses and wallets just like people do today. And so they just said the best solution is not to let them come in and be part of the crowd. What they didn't know is that a lot of those gypsies were sick up to here with their lifestyle. And they wanted a change. They wanted something different. And they had heard about these great meetings. And now they're being shut away. And you can imagine how smarting they felt going back to their village or the place where they stayed and lived to be rejected by those. But you know, it's not just happened there. Sometimes people are turned away by us. But anyway, going back to them, well, Moody said to Sankey in his disturbed tone, he said, you know what? They had services every afternoon and evening. He said, you know what we're going to do? We're going to have somebody else have the afternoon service. People think we'll be here, but we don't have to be here. I don't know these exact words, of course. But he said, Sankey, you and I are going to hire a horse and carriage and we are going to go out to Epping Forest where I hear those gypsies are. And we're going to have a program for them all by ourselves and just with them. And Sankey was game to do that. They hired their horse and carriage. When they rolled into that camp, that gypsy camp, the gypsies were shocked. They were still smarting from the experience of being turned away and here these, what they considered two great men, rolled right into their camp. They soon gathered together, and Sankey sang, and Moody preached, and you can guess what a response there was. All at once, you could just see Sankey, Moody saying, Sankey, probably pulled out a pocket watch, who knows, and said, look, we've got to get back in time for the evening service. We don't have anything else scheduled for the evening service. We've got to get back. And with that... Sankey sat into the carriage and a group of teenage boys, one of them about 15 years old with that olive skin, dark hair, dark eyes, gypsy eyes, 
crowded up against the buggy to say goodbye to these men. And Sankey just felt a strong impression come over him, and he laid his hand on the hand of that 15-year-old boy, and he began to pray, and he said, Oh, God, I don't know if this boy is a Christian or not, but make him one. And Oh, God, I pray that you would, that you would make him a preacher too. Amen. They soon slapped the reins, and they headed back to the city in trying to get back in time for the evening service, and years passed. One day in New York City, there was a knock on somebody's door. And when they went to answer the door, there stood a young man who had been preaching in England to crowds of 10,000 people. Even the royal family had come out to hear him preach And then he had sailed across the Atlantic Ocean and frontline news in those days was events like this evangelist coming to the United States. He had arrived at the shores of New York City. When he got to New York City, his welcoming party, he asked them, he said, does Iris Enke still live? And they said, yes, he does. He said, where? In Brooklyn, right here in New York City. I want to see him. And so this young man stood at Ira Sankey's door, was invited inside, and he, when he met Ira Sankey, he said, Oh, Brother Sankey, do you remember some years ago you were back in England, and one afternoon you took time off to be with the gypsies at the gypsy camp, and old Ira Sankey, who had now grown blind. And folks, Often when people become, have a special handicap or a special trauma or, or difficult thing come into their life, it's time when new songs are born. And that's when Iris Sankey wrote there'll be no, the music to There'll Be No Dark Valley When Jesus Comes. That's when he wrote the music to Under His Wings I Am Safely Abiding. So he couldn't see this man in front of him particularly, but he could hear his voice. And he said, do you remember when you were there? And yes, he said, I still remember that. Do you remember, he said, that just when you were leaving, you reached your hand out and laid it on the head of a boy? Do you remember? And you pray that he become a Christian and a preacher. Oh, oh, blind Iris Sankey said, you know, there are so many things I've forgotten. But he said, that moment I still remember. Brother Ira, I am that boy. My name is Gypsy Smith. And I don't get into the pulpit to preach, but what I still feel, the pressure of your hand on my head. Years passed. And I, and I don't know how many trips Gypsy Smith made. I think perhaps 20, I'm not sure. It was not by plane in those days, by ship. He made many a trip, maybe not 20, I don't know. Remember exactly how many he made to America. And the last time he came over, he was an old man. And he sat and he preached away one night. And an older, another old man came forward to talk to him after the service. In that service had been a young man called the Baptist Boy Preacher. His name was Vance Havner. And Vance Havner said to himself, I'd like to talk to that man. That was quite a sermon. If I could just meet that old Gypsy Smith from Europe. And so he went forward 
but he was behind the old man who was in front of him. And the old man said, Sir, I heard you preach the first time you came to America. And I remember how it tore at my soul, how it ripped me and spoke to me. But there's something I don't understand. That was many years ago. And now you are an old man and tonight you preach with the same fervor that you had many years ago. How does a man maintain it for many long years? I tell you, Vance Havner's ears were wide open because he was just a young preacher and he wanted to know the answer that Brother Gypsy would give to that old man. How do you maintain it for many long years? And old Gypsy Smith just smiled. And he said, sir, I have never lost the wonder of it all. And folks, that's the success that's going to be yours. Is if when you sing Amazing Grace, the amazing stays in it. And when you sing Marvelous Grace of Our Loving Lord, the marvelous stays in it. And when you get to the last stanza and you'll sing marvelous, matchless, infinite grace, it'll all stay in it because you are still marveling that you are among the select few who know about Jesus. 1.3 billion people in this globe right now have never even heard of him. Baptist missionary societies think they're doing a good job. They think they're covering the earth and they've got Baptist missionaries everywhere. They're doing a great job and I'm not going to minimize what they're doing. But they had a jolt when they did a population study and discovered that there was one missionary of their missionaries that they thought they had the world covered quite well. One missionary to over a million people. That's not so great after all, is it? It tells us that there's work to be done. I invite you to open your Bibles Deuteronomy chapter 31 or chapter the end of chapter 30 We lived in this community from 1980 to 1993 we have a lot of friends here, and the speaker that I'm replacing this morning was one of my hired men, and I am very sorry he's not here. I'm glad his, four of his offspring are here. But Sundays, sometimes, we would go up to the Anamosa prison, about an hour's drive north of here. And so one Sunday, we, uh, four of us men and our pastor, four of us were singing a men's quartet, and our pastor, we just stayed at church and ate a sandwich or two, and then after church we headed up for Anamasa. And the prisoners came out to the service, quite a few, and 
the four of us sang and our pastor preached and we sang some more. And, and then we had about 25 minutes left that we could just intermingle with the prisoners, the inmates. One of them that I was talking to said to me, I liked your singing. <laughs> that surprised me because we were just simple folks, a cappella, quartet. And, uh, but he liked it. And I didn't gather that he was a Christian. And so I asked him a simple question. I said, what do you think about rock music? And he said, I don't like rock. No, that surprised me. But then he added, he said, but I don't condemn it either. Because I believe it has something to say. That got me to thinking. What does rock music have to say? What is that heavy beat music? You don't even hear the term rock that much. What, but what does that kind of beat music have to say? What's he trying to say? I was teaching in a Bible school in Arkansas years ago. And we were having a Friday morning chapel. But before the chapel, during breakfast time, we had a prayer and fasting time. That was typically on Wednesday. But that morning, they, the students invited the students to a prayer and fasting service. And some of the faculty members were so curious about it. And the reason they were having the uh, service was because the students were having a chapel that morning, what they considered a very special chapel. So they really wanted God's blessing on the chapel. And so that particular morning, the, uh, the, uh, a number of, there was an amen corner up to my right here. And uh, the, a couple of faculty members came to see what these students are up to. Well, the moderator got up and he asked the simple question. He said, he asked this question, he said, what is the greatest need in America today? And they just sat quiet. Nobody answered. So he repeated the question. What is the greatest need in America today? And still no one answered. Well, faculty can't let questions like that go. So an old dotty um, over here, the oldest man, the, the students lovingly called him Moses because he did have a rather long beard and he looked like a patriarch that had walked right out of the Old Testament and had come to Bible school. So he rose to his feet and answered the question, what is the greatest need in America today with these words? The fear of God. And then he sat down. Well, the moderator happened to be yours truly. And uh, that wasn't at all what he had in mind. What he had in mind was he was thinking about what the need in our families for fathers and mothers to love each other as they ought. For sons to get along with their mamas and their daddies both. And for daughters to love their fathers and their mothers. And that was, it was a wonderful morning we had together because we were used to giving prayer requests for family members or cousins or somebody who had gone astray and had left the values that we were, that we were supporting. We would pray for them, but that morning was different. That morning we prayed for all of our brothers and sisters by name in front of our peers, the ones who are loyal the ones who are home, the ones who are a blessing. 
And I think that's a lesson for us this morning. I think we should have lots of prayer time for those like you who are loyal to the cause. Bless God for you. Bless God for coming. And I think none of us mind being bathed in prayer. I know that my 6th, 7th, and 8th graders will pray for these meetings this week too. And I bless God for a wonderful set of students. I bless God for that. Now, I couldn't, however, forget those two experiences. One, the greatest need in America today is the fear of God. Two, we don't condemn rock music because it has something to say. What does music have to say? Well, let's take a look at Deuteronomy chapter 31. And let's actually look at chapter 30 first, the last two verses. Verse 19 and 20. I call heaven and earth to record this day against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore choose life that both thou and thy seed may live, that thou mayest love the Lord thy God, and that thou mayest obey his voice, and that thou mayest cleave unto him, for he is thy life. And the length of thy days, that thou mayest dwell in the land which the Lord sware unto thy fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give them. And Moses went and spake these words unto all Israel. And he said unto them, I am a hundred and twenty years old this day. I can no more go out and come in. Also the Lord has said unto me, Thou shalt not go over this Jordan. The Lord thy God, he will go over before thee, and he will destroy these nations from before thee, and thou shalt possess them. And Joshua, he shall go over before thee, as the Lord has said. Now, Moses obviously is older than anyone here this morning. And I don't know if this was the actual day of his birthday or not. But he, was, he did say, I'm 120 years old today. And he was given an important message from God. And part of that message you will find in verse 6 through 8. Be strong and of a good courage. Fear not, nor be afraid of them. For the Lord thy God, he it is that doth go with thee. He will not fail thee, nor forsake thee. And Moses called unto Joshua and said unto him in the sight of all Israel, Be strong and of a good courage, for thou must go with this people unto the land which the Lord hath sworn unto their fathers to give them, and thou shalt cause them to inherit it. And the Lord he it is that doth go before thee. He will be with thee. He will not fail thee, neither forsake thee. Fear not, neither be dismayed. No fear. No fear. None. Well, I haven't seen it in the last years, but I used to see on the back of the jacked-up pickup trucks, the 4x4s that would go flying around, uh, looking like they're almost ready to orbit, on the back windows, they would have two words, no fear. (laughs) I worked in the ghetto area for over two years, Washington, D.C., And some of the strongest no-fear people, when we took them to the woods to a camp, we found out that it's not true, that they have no fear. I mean, the one boy was so scared that when he wanted to, the little bathroom that was attached to the cabin we were in, it was in the same building, 
and the door was partly closed. He pushed the door open. He squatted down and looked all around underneath before he went into the bathroom. And yet he was the toughest fella on Quarles Avenue. Tough. But he was out of his domain. He was off his turf. And he was afraid. So here we see that there's not to be any fear. Moses is telling, this is the message from the Lord. Now look at verse 12 and 13 with me. Gather the people together, men and women and children, and thy stranger that is within thy gates, that they may hear and that they may learn and fear the Lord your God and observe to do all the words of this law, and that their children which have not known anything may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land whether you go over Jordan to possess it. This is exactly what the critics of Bible of the Bible love. Verse 6 and 7 says, don't fear. Verse 12 and 13 says, do fear. You see, the Bible contradicts itself. You can depend on the Bible, is what the critics would say. Or is it okay to do a, just a very brief word study? What do you think the first kind of fear is? Do you think there is more than one kind of fear? There is a paralyzing fear, and there's an energizing fear. And the paralyzing fear is what God did not want his people to have in verse 6 and 7. And there is a, there is a fear that's a human fear. And we, we're human enough, we know that it's like that. We, we are ex selves experienced. I grew up in a farm in Kansas. We had beef cattle, 400 of them. And I would climb up the silage before we had a silo and loader. I would climb up the silo and I would fork out the silage by hand. Now some of you can't, do, can't even imagine what that would be like. Anyway, you can guess though that all the rungs and the rings down that whole silo chute that you were throwing the silage down would have all kinds of silage hanging onto it yet. And your hands would get all messy trying to go down that afterwards. So I decided I'm going to go up the top out of the chute and go down the outside of the silo and after I got up to the top in the good, clean, fresh air, I thought, you know what? It'd be fun to see how fast I can go down. I was youthful and more agile than presently. So I, I went up there and top, and I started going down fast. And suddenly I discovered I was falling over backwards because neither hand had hold of a ring. It would have only taken a split second for me to remember that my brothers and the dad and I had poured concrete around the bottom of that silo. And concrete is extremely unforgiving, especially if you encounter it from a distance. And so I knew that I'm going to, that this is terrible. And so I thrust my hands forward, and fortunately one of them found a ring, and I clung to it. My brother heard me say that one time. He said, do you know what happened next? I said, no. He said, we told you to come down. You wouldn't come down. He said, we came up, one on either side of you, and we pried your hands loose to get you loose to keep, make you keep on coming down. What was that? That's human fear. 
And that fear is actually kind of a safety thing for us. It's true not only of humans, it's true in the animal world. Because otherwise they, they'd all become the meal of their predators. In Pennsylvania, where we lived a good number of years, the Amish there, they have, uh, they put their milk in cans. And the milk truck goes around, picks up these cans, and he got to the one place after dark. And so, and he didn't have a flashlight with him. So, but he knew the path well. So he walks back toward the cans, and on his way back, he suddenly uh, kicks a cat. And the uh, cat was right in his path. And but a moment, just momentary later, the cat gave out a terrific yowl. And so it didn't. It was like a delayed yowl. Well, then he discovered that there was a rattlesnake laying in that path. And when the cat was, when he hit the cat, the cat's quick movement caught the rattlesnake's attention. The rattlesnake grabbed the cat. He was glad for the rattlesnake's choice, of course. But he said from then on, he said from then on, he carried a flashlight. He made sure he had a light going back there. Now that fear he experienced is human fear. And we have human fear. It's okay. It's, it's like I say, it's a safety value, a valve in a sense. But you know, there's two things about fear that we have to understand. One is, I'm talking about human fear especially, one is that we're only afraid if both of these two things are present. The first one is just its presence. The second one is its potence. I have threatened already, although I would never really, really seriously dream of doing it. Down at our creek in Pennsylvania, we had copperheads. And I've threatened already to take a couple copperheads and put them in a five-gallon pail with a lid on so they, they could breathe, but just let them get good and hungry, take them into the center aisle of the church and release them. There would be a dispersion of the saints uh, incredibly quickly. Uh, like a fire drill. Now suppose that somebody would step out and kill those snakes. I would almost promise you a gathering of the saints because they would want to kind of see what it was about if they knew there was no danger there. Why, why is it that you would be scared of a copperheads? Well, you're scared of copperheads because they were present and because there's potency in their in their in their bites. If you, know, if you would know how many people are killed every year on this globe we live on by snake bites, you would respect those copperheads and water moccasins and rattlesnakes and others, such uh, snakes. You would respect them. But why, if they were killed, would you come back and look at them? Because the potency is gone. The presence is here. You see, you need both. You need both of them present. Why are you sitting so comfortably this morning? Because the water moccasins and the copperheads and the rattlesnakes, they're just as potent in the world as they ever were. Oh, they're not present. You see, it takes both. Now, that's the kind of human fear that we face. But I'd like for you to just slip your Bibles back to Isaiah chapter 8. 
One of the things that you may hear while you're here, you may hear talk about the attributes of God, what his attributes are. I'm delighted to tell you that one of his attributes is omnipresent. It's a big word. Omnipresent. He is everywhere present. Bless God for that one. Number two, I am delighted to tell you that he is omnipotent. That means that he is all-powerful. When we begin to read in Isaiah chapter 8, verse 9 says, Associate yourselves, O ye people, and ye shall be broken in pieces, and give ear, all ye of far countries. Gird yourself, and ye shall be broken in pieces. Gird yourself, and ye shall be broken in pieces. Do you know of any other verse in the Bible that says it three times in one verse? Take counsel together, and it shall come to naught. Speak the word, and it shall not stand, for God is with us. For the Lord spake thus to me with a strong hand, and instructed me, that I shall not walk in the way of this people, saying, Say ye not a confederacy to all them to whom this people shall say a confederacy. Neither fear ye their fear, nor be afraid. There's your human fear. Don't be afraid. Exactly what we read in verse 6 and 7 in Deuteronomy chapter 31. Don't be afraid. This is the paralyzing kind of fear. But because there is a God who is everywhere present, and cancer can't be everywhere. Kidnappers and murderers can't be everywhere, even though they buried my grandchildren's teacher, older sister, on Friday in Texas. They can't be everywhere. But there is someone who can be everywhere. He is, he is omnipresent. And there's someone who is all-powerful. And at the funeral on Friday, they emphasized the fact that our prayers were answered that Sasha could be found. And let's just thank God for that. And so they thanked him for that. And the family thanks him for that. And her 16-month younger sister is standing in the classroom this morning, as far as I know, and teaching my grandchildren again in West Virginia. How can you have the courage to do that? Why was it that she waited till this past Monday to fly out west? How could she week after week keep on teaching the children when she knew her sister was missing? How could she do it? It's simple. She had learned the meaning of the fear of God. It's called reverence. Reverence of God, trusting the God who is omnipresent and omnipotent, everywhere present. And there's something more to this. The scripture right where you're reading gives you seven more words. Right here in verse, well, let's, let's, let's go to verse 13 first. Sanctify the Lord of hosts himself and let him be your fear and let him be your dread. 
Ah. Now we're making a difference between the human paralyzing fear and the energizing fear that Christians have that make them a remarkable specimen. People don't understand it. They don't understand how a Christian, how a man can stand in front of his casket of his wife. His name was Mark. And I walked up to him. And I knew his wife had suffered and died from cancer. This man has to be grieving to the depths. And I'm sure he was grieving to the depths. He met me with a smile. He said, I see I'm meeting an old friend. He'd been a Bible school student many years ago. I watched him after I was through the line and I saw young people stepping up to Mark and Mark kept smiling to them, giving them a word of encouragement and right here lays his dead wife. Where did he get the stamina? Where did he get the strength for that? Right here. Right here. He had let God become his fear. God was his reverence. And In the next verse, in verse 14, the first seven words tell you the secret. And he shall be for a sanctuary. We just enter into God, and folks, there's not a thing in this world that can, I I can talk, we can talk about broken relationships. Your girlfriend said no. All kinds of things can happen. Your mother got cancer. There's an accident that left you with a leg missing, and now you have an artificial leg, or it's coming yet. You can have all sorts of experiences, and I'm, I'm not minimizing the hurt at all. I'm mini- what I am saying, however, is that when we have the reverence and the fear of God, there is not a thing that can touch us beyond God's will for our lives. Not a thing. Why? We have a sanctuary. And I've discovered that it's not just 70-year-old men that need a sanctuary. I have discovered that 15-year-olds need them. I've discovered that the 13, 14-year-olds in my classroom who are presently in instruction for baptism, they need him. And they've found him. And I can tell they've found him by the way they live at school. And it thrills my soul. Bless God. So when you have the fear of God, it is a fear that supersedes all human fear. And you enter into a sanctuary of protection and safety. That is an incredible place to live. I don't see how you could ever lose the wonder if you're in that sanctuary. And if you recognize it. Or has life just all been peaches and ice cream for you? Has everything gone well for you? You haven't hit any deer. You haven't had any accidents. Nothing has gone wrong for you. Everything... You never fell when your skating broke your wrist or fell when you're playing with the school children broke your wrist like my wife did Friday night a week ago. You know, same wrist that she broke skating 50 years ago. You know, where are we? Why can we smile through difficulties? Why can we smile through surgeries? Why can we smile through hard experiences? It's because we have let God become our fear and God become our dread. How does music play into this? Oh, I hope. I hope by the grace of God when this week is over, you will have a love for the gift of song 
that surpasses what you've experienced up to this point. Just because God opens your eyes to the great gift of song. It's being replaced in other circles by their instrumentation and the song keeps dying out and dying out. Folks, we have to have song. We need song. And music is a powerful way to help build in us the awareness of God. Now, if you can't see what I'm doing, then I invite you to wiggle around a little bit and get in a position where you can. Where does the word music come from? Well, as you know, most words have a root. And so does music. Music, the root of music is simply the word muse. What does muse mean? Muse means to think. That's what muse means. Muse speaks of something devotional in nature. That devotional part of music speaks of reverential I better spell this right. I'll be in trouble with my students. Reverential fear. And I'm speaking of a godly fear. That is what music should do. Music should promote devotion. Music should promote a reverential fear. And I noticed that the first song in your song sheets does exactly that. It's it's a, it just starts it right off. And that song, as well as all songs that promote this kind of reverence, has order. That's a mark of that song. It is going to have order. Now, there are, of course, as you well know, other kinds of music. So let's put the word, let's just put the root word down. Muse to think. As you well know, since you're through school, you can add suffixes or prefixes and suffixes, and you can affect the meaning of the word. For example, I could use the word, uh, let me use the word theist over here. And I could use the word poly. And if I use the prefix polytheist, you would, your mind would go back to Hinduism where there's a thousand gods. And you can add Jesus to that. I don't think the Hindus mind that much. At least that's what they told me on the streets in New York City. You've got Jesus, we've got Krishna, it's all the same. What does it matter? It makes no difference. Krishna and Jesus, they're all the same. It doesn't matter. Why? Because they are polytheists. Then there are monotheists, which believe in one God. Mono is, well, a companion to mono would be dia, which would be two, like a monologue versus a dialogue. A dialogue is the conversation between two people. A monologue is the conversation that one has 
I guess with himself and hopes no one else is listening. And then there is another prefix we could put here. Well, let's put that one right here. So as soon as I put ah in front of theist and call it atheist, then does he believe in many gods, one god, two gods, or doesn't he believe in God at all? He doesn't believe in God at all. Why? Because that a changes, the prefix changes the meaning. So suppose I put that up here and I add a suffix to it to make it a noun and then I would have amusement. What does that do to the word ah? Well, that's what it does to it. Now, the escalation of amusement in our country today would make you think, if it's what the psychologists would want to bring a more restful America, you would think there are no security guards at the, at the doors of the schools anymore. The prisons are mostly empty. And there's just, we just live in a very restful country. Nobody's being kidnapped. Nobody's sold for human trafficking. And we just have a very restful country because there's a tremendous escalation of amusement more than ever before. Now, a teacher would have to ask the question, true or false? (laughs) And then you'd have to say false because you know that's not true. Why has there been such an escalation when you have all this exciting amusement, music and movies and and DVDs and internet, all the kinds of things that you can get these days to amuse you and all the technology that is cooperating with selfish interests, then why aren't people refreshed and renewed and, and sociable and kind and gracious? And why do they have to put be kind signs in the front yard? What's going on? We already have it. We're already in a nice America, a restful America. And you can see in the, the nation's capital, the Democrats and the Republicans hugging each other every day. You know, it's just a wonderful world we live in. No, it's not. No, it's not. There's been a decline of culture. And why the decline? Vance Havner made a very interesting statement years ago. Before I tell you what he said, let me say this. This kind of music, this amusement music, also has a nature to it. But it's not devotional in nature. It is selfish in nature. It's what I want. It's what feeds me. It's what pleases me. It's what's cool to me. And it is not marked by order, but it is marked by chaos. From a musical standpoint, that's what it's marked by. Now, Vance made this statement. He said, the word Christian is a noun. And I think we all understand that. Because a noun is the name of a person, place, thing, or idea. So a word Christian is a noun. But he said a word, the word Christian can also be used as an adjective. So, certainly it can be because 
We are in a Christian church right now, aren't we? You have just come here this morning from a Christian home. Your siblings, your younger siblings, are, gonna, are in a Christian school this morning. Right? All those are things that are describing the kind of school, home, and church that you belong to. This is not a mosque. This is a church. Christian. But he said what we are needing today are Christian Christians. And I thought, you know, he has a point. What does he mean by Christian Christians? Well, he means, you know, we know that today, well, I guess it could put legs on them too, that say it's just a matter of the heart. That's all that matters. It's the content. And this is very, very, he does need that. This, this is, I mean, this is so common especially in the contemporary Christian music world. You know, what really matters is that your heart is right. Your heart is right. It's just a matter of the heart. You love Jesus, and you say you love Jesus, and you throw out Bibles in your concert. You know that it's because your heart is right. Really? We're going to research that by Wednesday or so. Well, there are, of course, other people around, too. These people say it's just what's in that matters. And these people say, oh, it's form that matters. We want to look like Christians. It's out. It's what people see that matters. And so when people see that I look like a Christian, and I'm complying with things that are expected in my congregation, I'm a pretty good person. And they may not emphasize much what's taking place in here. But you get by. And you can have communion because this part looks right. This part is suspect. I heard John Macagena say this one time. And you'll be hearing this repeatedly throughout this week. Form and content must be in harmony. Form and content must be in harmony. That's a mouthful. But it's very true. Because what's inside must come out. And what's outside must reflect what's inside. And when what's outside just reflects culture, and I'm not opposed to culture, as you will find out, but when it only represents a certain culture and does not represent what's in the heart, then we have a significant problem and it is not in harmony. The two work together. I'm going to take you on a historical tour that I hope will help this make sense. Tomorrow we'll be talking about the perfect standard.
We'll be talking about how Jesus is this perfect standard. And we'll be looking, we'll be looking at some scriptures that support that. Just for today, however, or this morning especially, I'd like for you to just think about how great events have influenced the decline of culture. And when a culture falls, its music changes with the culture. When a culture rises, its music changes with it. Because the music is the reflection of the culture. So you can say that music is the effect. But music is not only the effect. Music is also the cause for a culture to fall. So it is both. It can be both. Now, if we look at some of the great events of the past, and we could... I'm, I'm going to start way back. Let's go... There's a 400-year period between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And in that 400-year period, there was no new voice from the Lord. Now, we can't hardly think back to the 1600s and say that there has been, we don't have the Bible, we don't have any voice from the Lord. And I'm not saying they didn't have oral tradition where they shared things. But I am saying that to me it is a marvel after 400 years of silence that at the end there's a teenage girl in northern Israel who is visited by an angelic being who says, you are highly favored. Where did that girl come from? After 400 years of silence. There's a young man, apparently in the same village, who has a, also has a visit in a dream. His was by dream, hers was not by dream. And he has this same experience. And when those two got together and traveled south months later, they entered into the temple. And an old man picked up or held in his arm the baby. And he blessed that baby and he said, this baby is the one that I was promised I would get to see. I recognize this baby. Now, most of us men, every baby looks almost alike. On this side, you can do better. How did this old man with his dim sight, how could he figure out who this baby was? And while he's still holding her, uh, holding him and talking about it, an old lady comes up whose eyes are also probably dim by age, and she's looking at him, and she looks at, oh, there he is. That's the promised one. Where does Joseph and Mary and Simeon and Anna, where do they come from? Folks, they come from a, a kind of people who had maintained a sanctuary, the fear of God, after 400 years of silence. They're incredible people. And I just am thinking that in our audience this morning we have many Marys and many Josephs. 
Do you think it was easy to be married? We think of the delight Mary had. Do you think it was easy for her to hear all the whispering that went behind people's about her illegitimate child that she's going to bear? And after that baby was born, and we know this happened because years later already, they're still saying it was an illegitimate child, illegitimate child. And they're making fun and poking fun. Mary knew different. Why? She pondered things in her heart. She was a thinker. She pondered things. I could talk about what happened to Jesus. I'm going to go after that, and I'm going to talk about some great events that have happened since. What is world culture? What is culture itself? And I tell you, I think it's very important that you catch this definition of culture. I don't. I didn't bring my Webster's Tenth Collegiate Dictionary. I didn't. I didn't turn to the word culture to give you a high-sounding definition of it. I want to give you a definition. I want you to remember all your life. Culture is the way we do things. End of description. End of explanation. We are living in a time when there are a lot of people reacting to our culture. They react to Amish culture. They, act, they react to old Mennonite culture. They react to all kinds of culture. German Baptist culture, they react to, they react to all kinds of culture. And the Baptists react to the Baptist culture. And the Presbyterians are reacting to the Presbyterian culture. And people are reacting to their cultures. Culture is simply the way we do things. We're going to be without culture. We're going to be a kind of person we decide that has the content. We're going to be without culture. You are of no value if you decide that. You have no value in kingdom work at all. It's just like the boy who left his Christian home and went up north to help cut wood one summer in the Canada. It was years ago. They didn't have cell phone service. He was gone for two years. He worked with a secular crew. And his parents were terribly concerned how he being the only Christian in that crew, how he's going to maintain his Christian faith. He came back and his parents early questioned. They were so glad to see him home again. And they asked him soon, how did you make out being the only Christian on your woodcutting crew up there, the logging crew? He said, wasn't any problem at all. They never found out I was one. He was one. He was one inside, but nobody could find it out that he was. It reminds me of high school, public high school, ninth grade. I had a boy in, my, in ninth grade from our, one of our churches, and it was the first year that we went from our local school that it was enforced that we go to school, high school in Kansas. And this boy was terribly embarrassed to be a Mennonite and he was terribly embarrassed to represent Christian values. But he was also had a peer pressure from the rest of us who were in school. You know, he knew he can't be too different from us. Or So when we got to the lunch table with all these public school students, and we all bowed our head to pray, I mean, he was good at it. He just coughed right then. 
prayer was over, and he ate his meal. That way the Mennonites knew he had prayed, and, but the others knew he had coughed. <laughs> and so he, he was getting along with both of them. Well, that's a very uncomfortable place to be, by the way. World culture is affected by Christians. Christians affect world culture. I'm going to go to the New Testament, to the time of the Jerusalem conference, when someone has called this the triumph of grace over legalism. When they came back saying that, you know what, the Gentiles have entered in. Before the Gentiles were dogs, right? No room for them. Oh no, God loves Gentiles, has always loved them. But their rejection of him has caused them a lot of death, a lot of difficulty. And at the Jerusalem conference they said, well, should we impose these rules? You know, you read about this in Acts 16, I think. What, what shall we do? They, they, they ought to be circumcised, I think, because that's what we're always used to doing is circumcising outward, Right? Well, they did decide that there are four things that they should follow in the teaching as well as all the teachings of Jesus and the apostles. And so they wrote those four things down. And they wrote those things down and they sent them out to the different churches and said, please practice these four things. Those poor Christians of their day, they didn't know that they were supposed to chafe at that and say, we don't want anybody to tell us four specific things that we're supposed to do. We want to just live by the Spirit. Don't tell us. You know how, you know how simplistic and naive those churches were? They rejoiced when they got the letter and knew what to do. Well, I hope you understand I said that tongue-in-cheek. Bless God for Courage. Bless God for courage to be able to share with each other and encourage each other as a brotherhood to say, this is how we can best serve the Lord. Let's do it all together this way. And make it easy for each other. Easier. Bless God for it. That was the triumph of grace over legalism. They said, no, okay, we agreed. You don't have to be circumcised, but there's a certain number of things you should absolutely practice. We want to see this true of Jew and Gentile alike. And the churches rejoiced in it. That was a time of triumph. World culture saw this thing go up, and it did go up. They said, oh, look, they're accepting Gentiles, folks. That's closer to the perfect standard because God loves Gentiles or we'd be in big trouble at this Bible conference. Big trouble. Well, great events. And I think the Jerusalem Conference was a great event. But then we have Constantine, and it seems like a time of optimism because, you know, when they first came to Rome, Christians did, and they said, oh, you want, you want to serve Jesus? That's okay, you can have Jesus. All right, that's not a problem. You can have Jesus. No, they said, we just have only Jesus. They said, no, wait a minute, we, we can't have that. You can put him in the midst of our others, but you can't have him exclusively. No, they said, we don't serve a Jesus like that. That caused a big problem. They became persecuted. You've read about the catacombs. And yet when Constantine came on the scene a good number of years later, here's a Roman emperor that's outside and he, he sees this. What did he see? He saw this thing in the clouds 
cross. Well, it's like he's having a vision. And it says, by this ye shall conquer. Wow. Cross. What is that? That reminds me of the Christians. You mean if I'd, if I'd employ that cross, I'd conquer some more of the world? Okay. Okay. See, what do Christians do? See, oh yeah, they baptize. So he rode his army through a river. Some of them held their spears up so they wouldn't get wet. And they rode through the river, came out the other side, and he could look with satisfaction at his army because he had a baptized army. They all got wet. Folks, that was a dark time. That actually led to the dark ages. That plunged the world down this way. The dark ages. Because it brought church and state together. It plunged the culture down. That is a misrepresentation of this standard. Out of the middle of that, there was a man who was reading his Bible. He was a part of it. He was a part of this church and state combination. He could read Habakkuk 2.4. He could read Galatians 3.11. He could read Romans 1.17. He could read Hebrews 10.38. And every time he's reading the same thing, the just shall live by his faith. The just shall live by faith. The just shall live by his faith. The just shall live by faith. That so arrested his attention that he said, faith is something that takes place inside. And so there's going to be a change. You know who I'm talking about. It caused the Reformation. Martin Luther I'm talking about. That Reformation moved the culture upward. In fact, on a just a political, not just a political, but just in a general sense. There were advances in medicine. There were advances in communication. There were a lot of advances that came during this time, and we know it as the period of the Renaissance. A renewal. Something better is coming. Bless God. However, out of that group people who heard Swingley preach, and Zingley was a preacher who taught chapter verse. Down this, taught this, taught this chapter verse. And his, his listeners were tremendously inspired and motivated. And they would go and ask questions. Oh, look at that. Look at that. Look at that scripture. We ought to practice that. We ought to practice that. And, the, and their practice... And Zwingli said, no, we better check with town council. And so those who had been part of the Reformation began to react to those who wanted to take more of the Scripture seriously, the Anabaptists. And so their persecution came not only from people in the state church, but their persecution came from the Reformed church. Time to quit. I'm not done, but I'll come back to it. I'm going to close with these words. And he shall be for a sanctuary. He shall be for a sanctuary. 
And that is exactly what the Anabaptists experienced. In that dark time, the persecution, have you ever noticed how thick the martyr's mirror is? We stood at Martin Sa- uh, Michael Sattler's gravesite six or seven years ago, my wife and I. They cut out his tongue because they didn't want him witnessing. There were too many people coming to Christ when they saw the Anabaptists suffer. It was affecting the world culture around them. We drove uh, half a mile from there and looked at the river where they drowned his wife just a couple days later. My wife turns to me and says, Haroldine, is it really right that you and I get to go to the same heaven as Michael and his wife? We've had our difficulties. We've had our disappointments in life, not with each other, but other disappointments. Is it right? Folks, we have a sanctuary. And we have a God who wants his people to enjoy the wonder of it all. God bless you, young folks.